that dread hair with a little scruff looking smooth boy cause time's been rough <laughs> you still hating mm, well that's enough i'm feeling way too good to trip up off the little stuff they hating when we roll up looking so sick they throw up guess what they know what like welcome to another episode of religionless church i'm your jobless seminarian and religionless church host mason meninga in this episode i talk with karen gonzalez Karen is a speaker, writer, and immigrant advocate, and recent author of The God Who Sees, Immigrants, the Bible, and the Journey to Belong. Also musically featured throughout this episode is Jelani. Jelani is a hip-hop artist from California. You can get connected with both Karen and Jelani and their work in the links in the episode description. In the links in the description, you will also find my website, masonmeninga.com, where you can find more of my work including some articles and papers I write, other religionless church episodes, and ways to connect with me via social media. If religionless church matters to you, there are two ways you can support. First, give the podcast a rating and a review. This not only offers thoughts and evaluations to others considering listening to the podcast, but it also informs me upon what to improve with the podcast. The second way to support is become a patron of my Patreon page. Patreon is a service where supporters financially support creators. With currently three different tiers varying from $1 to $10 a month, you receive respective rewards for supporting my work. Rewards include papers I write, upcoming religionless church episode previews, lectures I create, and much more. The links to connect to and support me and my work, including my Patreon page, are all in the episode description. I no longer wish to be your object cause of desire, as I, with my begging rambling, prevent you from your object of desire of this awaiting episode. Therefore, here it is, Religionless Church. Yeah, I got that fire. If you smell something burning in, that's just my desire. What I done learned, it'll take you higher. I got that fire. Today we have Karen Gonzalez, and Karen is a speaker and a writer and an immigrant advocate. Uh, and so you are a number of things to lots of different people, Karen. Uh, but I'm wondering, who is Karen Gonzalez to Karen Gonzalez? To me, let's see, to myself, I would say I am an immigrant daughter, which is very different than just being an immigrant and mm. being a daughter. I am... Most definitely a writer, a person who really loves words and loves the way that what words can do on a page, the way that words can shape reality. Mm -hmm. And I am also a nonprofit professional. I work in, uh, I'm a director of human resources at an organization that works with refugees and immigrants. And so I sort of wear this sort of like, more serious executive hat by day <laughs> and mm-hmm. uh, sort of by early morning and late evening, I am just kind of a writer and theologian and thinker on Sundays. I'm often a preacher at my. 
But I would say mostly that's where all my identities lie. One of those identities that you can kind of maybe add to the the list now is that you also are an author, not just not just a, a writer, uh, but also an author. Uh, and in your most recent book, The God Who Sees, just came out not too long ago. Uh, and so you've done a lot of writing throughout your life, most of which has been really personal writing. Uh, mm-hmm. But what is it that you learned about yourself when writing The God Who Sees specifically? Mm-hmm. You know, what's really interesting is I, <clears throat> I learned how formative the experience of being an immigrant had been. For a long time, I dealt with that story as something in the past, mm. something that happened. And now I live in the U.S. and have since I was a little girl. And now this is my life. And I don't think I realized how transformative that experience was in good ways and in bad ones, mm. not, not, not just in ways that are positive. Um, in fact, it was such a, a difficult emotional process writing the book that I told my brother and sister, who I'm pretty close to, I said, you know, I never realized if it was this hard for us, imagine being a 30-something-year-old adult like our parents were, Mm. it must have been excruciating. It must have been so difficult and so painful, that displacement into a new language, new culture, and not even time to learn it. Just you have to start working and surviving. And I said, we should do something really great for dad. And so in April, we took him to Europe, which is where he wanted to go for a couple of weeks, uh, just the four of us, because my mom passed away, as those who uh, read the book know. And I think that's what I connected to, that as much as a story of, my story of immigration is a story of um, adventure, of new opportunities, it's also a story of loss. And it's also a story of grief. And that's really, that really was a huge learning process for me as I was writing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. In the book, you talk about your personal migration with your family from Guatemala to LA to even Florida. Could you Mm -hmm. kind of briefly describe that story um, and share that story of that migration? Sure. So my family left um, Guatemala in the 80s. And it was really, I heard someone say this, I don't know who it was, but said, you know, Immigrants aren't sitting around in their home countries um, dreaming about or thinking about the American dream. Instead, they're fleeing a Central American nightmare. Mm. And that's not the story of all immigrants, but it is the story of my family. Mm. And so in the 1980s, um, the U.S. uh, funded a civil war in Guatemala that really displaced a lot of people and it was the cause of death for a lot of people. And my family fled to the U.S. because we had relatives here. We have some relatives that actually fled to Mexico. And my uncle had just become a U.S. citizen, so he could sponsor us. But as anyone who's ever been through any immigration process knows, uh, all those processes are expensive and they require a lot of time. And so We landed in Rhode Island, which is where my father's family lives. But as you know, it's a little tiny state. Mm -hmm. 
and the Latino community there knew each other pretty well. And it just wasn't safe in terms of hiding, being undocumented and waiting for that immigrant visa to be available. And so we were afraid. We kept hearing, you know, my parents said they kept hearing about raids and different things happening. So they were really afraid because we had overstayed a tourist visa. Mm. And so we took a Greyhound bus all the way to LA where my mom's family lived, my grandma and my uncle, and we lived with them. And we waited there with them until that immigrant visa showed up about two and a half years later. And one of the things that's so shocking to me is I, I remember there was a book that came out the 80s or 90s that was talking about how certain immigrant groups are clearly quote unquote better than others mm -hmm. because they tend to have all this success in the U.S. And it pointed to people like Cubans. It pointed to people like I think even Iranians were in that group and um, the Vietnamese and it was really interesting because what came out later, of course, is that all those groups are documented. They either came as refugees, um, and which means that you will automatically get a green card and an immigrant visa. And people don't realize what a huge difference that makes in the life of an immigrant. Mm. And if I could tell you about our lives when we were documented in our lives after we got our green cards, it's night and day. All of a sudden, you're no longer worried about hiding. You're no longer worried about staying under the radar and not being noticed. You can think about things like, oh, I'd like to buy a house. Oh, I'd maybe like to move. I maybe like to get my kids some music lessons or mm. some little league. I mean, it's incredibly transformative in the lives of immigrants to become documented. And, and that's what happened for us. And once that happened, my parents felt like, okay, LA is really expensive. <laughs> and we are never going to be able to buy a home here. And so they decided to move to Florida because foolishly they only visited in February instead of having gone, <laughs> you know, in August, which really tells you what it's like to live in Florida. <laughs> well, it's better than immigrating and, to Minnesota in the winter. <laughs> that's true. That's true. So we ended up, uh, we grew up really, I think of most of the time we lived in the U.S. We lived in Florida. I went to college in Florida for undergrad. And so that's really the story of, of our migration. And we were extremely fortunate. We had a relative who could sponsor us and in a line that was relatively short at that time. I mean, now we were migrating. That line would be 13 to 23 years, depending mm. on where you're from. I mean, it's an impossible wait um, for many people, but, but that's where it's at right now. But so many people don't have any relational connections, don't have anyone who can sponsor them. And the most frequent question I get when I speak about immigration is people say, oh, I just want people to get in line. I want them to get in line and do it the right way. Mm. And they don't realize how many people don't have a line. There is no line because you don't have the right relational connections. And so that's my story of mm. our immigration in a very long, long answer. <laughs> Said I wouldn't be this, said I couldn't be that, but look at where I'm at. Huh. I remember sitting in the studio, they was talking mad trash about me and my beats. I'd be lying if I didn't say it got to me. Check it. No matter how hard it gets, you always gotta keep stepping. So my ambition got me pointed in the right direction. Fueled by depression and life lessons, I learned that when it comes to being real.
One of the things that I love about your book is you talk about your spiritual migration that also happened, and it sort of runs in parallel to the geographical migration that happens for you and your family. Um, mm -hmm. So one of the things I'm just curious about is could you share more about that spiritual migration that has occurred throughout your life? Sure. So um, one of the things I learned in writing this book is how formative the Catholic Church was. Mm -hmm. in my life of faith in my life in general but especially in my life of faith and latin american catholicism is very different from american um it's very woven into like the everyday life and culture like i remember even having fish on fridays in guatemala and my parents weren't even religious people you know my dad was a socialist and my mom <laughs> was you know, just a very nominal catholic but it's just important in the whole life um and I just remember that was my first home in the faith. And I was deeply interested in faith, but I didn't really understand much of what was happening in church. And, but I wanted to be drawn to it. And a lot of it had to do with, I experienced a lot of fear and anxiety around the war in Guatemala, which my parents were not aware that I was, I was aware of it. I knew the war was happening and I could hear them talking and I knew that people were being hurt people that they knew. And so church seemed to be like a place of safety to find uh, some solace or comfort in God. And so I was always very interested, um, but did not really understand. And I even talk about it as if, you know, this, all this confusion and disorientation about faith, I carried all the way <laughs> to my adulthood because I was drawn and yet I didn't understand. It didn't seem like there were words that were simple enough for me to understand faith. And so there sort of began to be these forays into evangelical Christianity as a, as a young girl. And it was really through my grandmother. And I talk about um, something called Abuelita theology, mm -hmm. which is grandmother theology. Mm -hmm. And and it's the way that many Latinx people like me, it's the way that we come to know about faith for the first time. It's through our grandmothers and they introduce us and they are the ones who shape us. And for my grandmother, this was just a way to live out your faith in the ordinary because, you know, the immigrant life of undocumented immigrants is one of survival. It's a, it's a hard and difficult mm. life. And so she, was part of like a sort of a Pentecostal evangelical church, kind of unhealthy, to be honest, kind of prosperity gospel-ish and mm. <laughs> very much like Jesus came to make us wealthy and healthy. Um, but it was also a place where I was introduced to, to gospel music. They finally had words for faith that I understood because it wasn't, you know, there were no, there was no like high church talk. Everything mm. was very simple and it sort of allowed me a doorway into faith. And that's how I began to explore and learn about faith and even got baptized again because they did not like my baptism in the Catholic church. <laughs> so, <laughs> of course. And yeah, that's sort of the way that it was woven together. One of the overarching themes that you talk about throughout the book is assimilation. So obviously in assimilation, difference is painted over with one shade, with that shade often being white. Uh, and it nullifies any sort of difference. 
uh, and any sort of vibrancy even. So it's no mistake that your book is entitled The God Who Sees. And my assumption behind uh, what if, if you had to continue that title, it, it would be The God Who Sees Difference. Uh, mm-hmm. So with that said, what are ways that difference magnifies the kingdom of God? Yeah, you know, it's interesting because I used to think, well, what's the alternative if there's no assimilation, right? Mm. And I finally arrived at the idea of integration, where you can still be who you are, who God created you to be. If God had wanted me to be white, I would be white, you know, <laughs> but God, God didn't. I was born in a particular country with a particular skin tone and eye color and hair color. And I feel now that you can still be who you are and still also be part of of the mainstream culture. Whereas assimilation seeks to just erase that, right? Mm -hmm. Just, you're just going to become like it. And, you know, for a while I tried that a lot of Christians of color or people of color who are educated do we, we kind of learn uh, either consciously or unconsciously that this is the way to win the game is you have to assimilate into the dominant culture and at least when you're with them, you, you have to act like it and talk like it and be like it. But what I learned about integration is that I could still be who I am. Even in those spaces, I could still be who I am and I could still celebrate that and honor that. And I believe that God does that too. And I, I talk about in my book how a really important text for me in recognizing that was John 4, mm. that God you know, Jesus encounters this Samaritan woman and it matters that she's a Samaritan and it matters that she's a woman. He's not asking her to change these things, but he does change her life and her calling. I don't think she's a sinner like a lot of people do. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I do think Mm -hmm. she in some ways has suffered in her life through, I don't know, perhaps five unhappy husbands who left her because she couldn't have children Mm. or for whatever reason. So I sort of read that story differently than a lot of people have been taught it in church because I don't think she's a sinner. I do think she's just an ordinary person who's kind of accepted what the culture says. You know, the first thing she says is, I can't believe you, you're a Jew, you're talking to me. Um, but he changes all of that in, in, in the encounter with her. Like God, it matters to Jesus that she's a Samaritan. It matters that she's a woman and he doesn't seek to change any of that but he does seek to sort of redirect her life, you know, for a new calling. So, yeah. That's a great segue uh, because my next question is that you clearly point out that the Bible is a story of immigration. So my question then is what did you learn about your own story when reading the Bible through the lens of it as a book about immigration? Yeah, well, It's interesting in reading the Bible for years, I'd never seen that. I think when I imagined what these people might have looked like, I always imagined they were European people, you know, Mm -hmm. (laughs) and mostly because in art, right? And right, exactly. They're always portrayed that way. And I think when I started looking at the Bible, not from the dominant culture, but from the margins. And started to see things that I hadn't seen before. And one of them was, oh my gosh, Ruth 
was an immigrant. She mm -hmm. migrated from Moab. Um, and before then, Naomi and her family had been immigrants. And then, you know, Naomi returns home with her daughter-in-law. And I started to see in the Bible all the people, all the movement of people, and that it was very natural. And that, in fact, it seemed to be part of God's plan for people to move around. Abraham was called here and there. Um, and then I, it, it became easy to see myself in that story. Mm. You know, I think for many years, I thought, I thought of myself the way many people think about immigrants, like we're guests, right? So the hospitality that you extend to a guest is different than a person who lives in the home, right? Mm. A person who lives in the home can do anything in that home, but a person who's a guest has a particular role to play. And in the U.S., I felt like my role was to be the good immigrant, <laughs> a good guest. Mm. But suddenly, I saw the way that this seemed to be part of God's plan, the movement of people, the migration of people, and saw myself in all these stories, and I'd never, I'd never seen that before. They became, for me, a very powerful, very empowering um, sort of knowledge that really energized me in a way to, to step into callings like writing, for example. I always thought, no, I'm going to be a good immigrant. For many years, I was an, an English teacher. And I didn't really like it, to be honest. But it seemed to me like a responsible, good immigrant daughter thing to do, to have a job that had benefits, that had you know mm. a, a steady paycheck. But what I really loved was writing. And that's what I that's why I majored in English, because mm -hmm. that's what I loved. But I didn't think it was okay um, to pursue that. And so in many ways, just seeing myself in the scriptures became very freeing. Mm -hmm. It was this pathway to, to liberation. Yeah. How could I forget? Tell me how could I forget? What you said to me. Said I wouldn't be this, said I couldn't be that. As you explored the stories of immigration in the Bible, and there's plenty in there, <laughs> um, what immigration story or character in the Bible most resonates with you for whatever reason? Um, and, and why is that? I think it's probably the Syrophoenician woman in Mark, mm. in the Gospel of Mark. And it's because she talks back. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great story for that reason alone. It is for that reason alone. And he affirms her because she talks back. And, you know, I, I have a pretty strong personality and <laughs> I'm really opinionated and, um, and I, I, a lot of those things always felt wrong for women in the church and for women in my culture, particularly. <laughs> and so I love the way that this woman talks back to Jesus. You know, she refuses to accept her marginalization as a woman, as a foreigner, as someone who's unclean. I mean, she suffers a multi-layered discrimination, but she doesn't back down. She just talks back to Jesus mm -hmm. until Jesus says, yeah, I affirm you. I affirm your words. Mm -hmm. You know, what you say is true. And I love that. And I think it's something that 
for a lot of immigrants, they need to claim and do that. It's okay for us to talk back, to advocate for ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and that it's, it's okay to even talk back to Jesus and say, you know, Jesus, you're the one who said that those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be filled. Well, we need you to do that for your own namesake. We need you to do that. Um, and so I love that about her, that she stands in this long tradition of so many women in the scriptures who spoke up and now not always does speaking up have good results, mm. but, but it's still important, right? For the preservation of our souls. Mm-hmm. Um, to speak up and not just accept oppression, not just accept mm-hmm. marginalization. Mm-hmm. One of the things I love about your book is you structured it where every other chapter tells of your own story through the lens of five of the sacraments in the Catholic tradition. So what did you learn about the sacraments when writing The God Who Sees through the lens of your own immigration story? Mm-hmm. Well, for one thing, you know, when I first started attending churches, when I was a college student attending like Protestant churches, I always felt like something was missing. Like, oh, I really miss, I really miss some of the order of the Catholic church. I really miss the prayers. For some reason, there's something deeply comforting about knowing now it's confession time. Now it's prayer time. Whereas, you know, in the evangelical church and in many Protestant churches, it's very kind of free flowing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so, um, so what I learned really is how much I needed that, that somehow that, that first introduction to faith uh, through baptism, through confirmation, through um, even confession, reconciliation, anointing the sick, like it was deeply meaningful to me that I love the symbols in the Catholic church because they're concrete. You know, I talk about in the book how they have the incense and it represents the prayers going up to heaven. Hmm. Just like the Psalm says, my prayers rise like incense. And so we have something to represent that reality. And I love that about the Catholic church. Everything means something and it's concrete. Um, so much of, uh, our life in the evangelical church was just, you know, things were symbolic or, you know, I never really understood what it was that communion was supposed to mean. Um, if it was just symbolic, then why are we doing it? If it's not an actual something mystical and spiritual happening in this event, why are we doing it then? <laughs> and so I love that about the Catholic church, that things are something, you know, they believe you're taking the actual body and blood of Christ um, when you receive it. And that's powerful and meaningful, you know, for people in that tradition. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, now I'm a Lutheran, <laughs> which is only one step away from the Catholic church. Oh yeah. But for the Catholics, that's a big step. It's a big step away. A little for too that, far yeah. maybe. <laughs> for me, not such a huge step, but uh, yeah, but I, I, and I, it's the same thing in the, in the Lutheran church. The, the liturgy is, is similar. And there are, there are a lot of things in the, in the Lutheran liturgy that are also not just symbols, you know, but there's a real sense of presence within them, like the presence of God within them, including communion, which they receive as a mystery um, of faith. So I was really, yeah, I really, through the book, learned so much about wow, 
all this time I've been looking for the Catholic church, <laughs> but I've been looking for a Catholic church where women <laughs> like me can speak up. Right. Right. I've been looking for, uh, for this same sort of experience of faith. I also learned a lot. Um, it was deeply meaningful to my family. For example, when my mom was sick and dying and they anointed her with oil. It meant a lot to my family. And I didn't know why for the longest time until the writing of this book and I got to have conversations with people in my family about it. And it's this tangible sign of grace, you know, that was deeply meaningful to them. I'm just trying to balance being book and street smart. So before I close my eyes and watch the world go dark, getting everything in store, just need a bigger car. Soul searching always be the hardest part. So I lace up my shoes and just follow my heart. Tell me how could I forget? <laughs> said I wouldn't be this, said I couldn't be that. But look at where I'm at. Yeah. Today we have Jelani, who is a hip hop artist. And I didn't even ask you, where Jelani, where are you hailing from? Where where are you at right now? I am, I grew up in San Jose, but right now I'm in Stockton, California Okay. Uh, at the University of the Pacific. Oh, great. So our friend Anastasia connected us. Um, and, yes, I and, love her. Yeah, she's so <laughs> great. And uh, as my listeners know, I interview lots of different artists from around the country. And so it was great that someone like Anastasia was able to connect us because, you know, I'm always looking for new artists to, to check out and, and feature on the podcast. So you just this last year have released a new EP. Uh, it's called First Impression. Um, I was kind of curious. I, I didn't do a ton of searching, but the title of this EP tells me that it might be some of the first music you may have recorded and put out. Is that the reason for calling it First Impression? Uh, kind of. Uh, it is kind of like the first taste, I feel like, of Jelani. Um, okay. Because prior to this, I was in a hip hop group um, named Imprint. Uh, we were just like this band of producers that made music and rap. Oh. Um, and then before that, uh, when I was in high school, I used to be in a rock band and would play my violin. And so it was just like being in those different groups and, and working with different people on collaborative projects. This is like my first time I'm kind of like, stepping out on my own and whatnot <laughs> yeah that's a that's a big first step yeah no it's scary <laughs> it is it certainly is but how, how did how did you think it the the product ended up i mean i know it's scary but I, I mean from what i heard it is really wonderfully produced and just great songwriting right, thank you <laughs> and uh and even though i don't maybe have as well tuned of an ear to hip-hop it sounded really great so but how do you feel thank about you it? Um, man, I, I'm like, it, it feels unreal sometimes, mm -hmm. um, uh, because like, man, I've been on this grind since I was like 12, you know, and it just, it just feels like I'm finally taking steps in the right direction and I'm doing it through school. So it's just like, I, I never even thought that this would happen like this or right. even, you know, so I'm just like, man, I can actually check myself out on Spotify. <laughs> like, That's great, isn't it? This is dope. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm, and I'm, I'm happy with, with how the songs turned out because um, one of the songs was an old song that I just decided to like 
redo and kind of like update. Mm -hmm. And so um, that song is one of my favorite. Uh, it's How Could I Forget? Um, and that song is one of my favorite, favorite songs to like perform and just to sit back and listen to. Mm hmm. It, I mean, it, it it does have like a little bit of a like a chill vibe to it. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I notice uh, uh, versus a couple of the other songs. Uh, one, well, let's talk a, a bit about the songs too individually. What were some of the lyrical themes that you were trying to convey on this EP? Um, I since I was calling it first, or since I called it first impression, my idea was to. Um, give a taste of like these different sides of Jelani hmm. in a way. Mm -hmm. And so um, uh, I started off with uh, No Smoke. No Smoke, that that to me is like my typical or your typical like braggadocious like hip hop song. You yeah. know what I mean? Yep. You are just like, you letting the people know I'm not the one. <laughs> yep. <laughs> you know? um, and then uh, How Could I Forget, for me, that is uh, my more heartfelt. And that's where um, I just wanted to reflect on all the, the negativity that has been told to me in my life. Mm. You know, mm -hmm. um, whether it was from other people or from myself, you know, um, just sitting back and reflecting on that and just being honest. Um, and then good vibes was something I made on the fly. And it was, it, it was during a time in my life where people around me kept saying like, yo, you just keep giving off like these good vibes. Like you're such a chill person, <laughs> blah, 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 blah. And I was like, thanks. I didn't, didn't really realize that about myself. And then I was making this beat and then I was like, can I make this concept fit to this song? And so I was just like, I think this fits for first impression. <laughs> mm -hmm. Good vibes. Let's chill. You know, mm -hmm. what about sonically with this album, right? Like there's so much variance in hip hop, uh, between, you know, like an East coast sound versus a West coast sound and, yeah, yeah, yeah. and everything in between. Right. Uh, what were you trying to get at sonically when you were, when you were making your beats and just making the music in general? Man, uh, what was I trying to get at sonically? Um, I I think overall, God, because it's weird when when you're the artist and the producer, mm. and you're mm -hmm. trying to find out, okay, where do I fit as an artist? You know, um, do I want to sound like these other cats, or do I want to like blaze my own path? Right, you know. And so part of me was really trying to uh, to tiptoe that fine line, I guess, in a way, um, uh, especially with songs like uh, Good Vibe, because to me, that's not like your everyday pop listening sound. Yeah. You know, but it but it's it's something chill enough that you could just be like, oh, OK, I think I can cruise down the beach to this or something. <laughs> you know. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think um, for me, I was really trying to uh, be the same but different. <laughs> mm -hmm. That was what I was going for yeah. sonically. <laughs> 
Who, who are some of the artists that you were listening to when you were writing and recording these songs? Oh, um, definitely a lot of Kendrick, definitely yeah. a lot of J. Cole. Um, I was listening to Mick Jenkins. Um, he's a rapper from Chicago. Um, and uh, another uh, rapper, his name is Smino. Or Smino. Mm. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. <laughs> well, I, I, I don't know who this person is, so you probably are. <laughs> He he's he's dope. He's from um, St. Louis, and like both of them, McJenkins and and Smino, they they have their own sound and just their own message. That I was just like, okay, where is this for me? <laughs> mm-hmm. And so um, finding that out and um, just putting that in the music. Mm-hmm. That's great. My my last question here is, uh, I mean, you, you just released this new EP. Um, there might be new projects on the horizons. Maybe you're thinking about doing some shows. Uh, wh- oh, what's, in the yeah. fu- what's in the future for Jelani? What, are, are you making new music? You thinking about doing some tours? What What's in the works? Um, in the works right now is um, my next single, Nothing But A Game. Um, I'm super excited to to just finish that because <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm, I'm really loving how it's turning out. It's, it's turning out unlike how I expected it to be, but I still, I still think it's very cool. Um, and then I'm going into my senior year at UOP, um, which involves a project. And so for my senior project, I'm working on another EP um, called higher learn. And so uh, that is going to be released next year. Mm. yeah 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 so that's my that's in the works for jelani right now (laughs) that's great well thank you again jelani this has been really wonderful um you mentioned a little bit ago about how uh i I think it was uh the second track uh how could i forget that uh people mentioned to you about how like chill and vibey you were and uh and I, I totally get that. Like there, I, I don't. Th- I don't think it's just them that was thinking that. I I can see that just in myself. So, um, hey. it comes across. It comes across universally. And uh, so I just thank you for your wonderful personality <laughs> and how that that comes across so well in your music. Um, and how just great of a music musician you are. You're a great producer, a great musician, great songwriter. Um, and so I really, I really hope the best for, for this music. Uh, I, I'm really excited about being able to share that with the world. Thank you. I really appreciate it. I'm, I'm grateful for this interview. I'm so excited. Your podcast is awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Not only are you an immigrant, but you also work with immigrants. How was writing this book or how has this the writing of this book shaped your relationship with those with whom you work, um, if it has at all? Mm-hmm. You know, for one thing, I realized how much privilege I have. Like I said before, I had the privilege of having a relative who could sponsor us um, at a time when the waits were not as long as they are today. 
So I, I recognize that even though I'm a woman and I'm an immigrant, you know, and I'm, you know, I have darker skin, I still have a lot of privileges. I have a college education. I had a father, you know, who was educated and parents who care deeply about my education and about my assimilation into American culture. Mm. And that helped a lot in terms of my ability to have a measure of success, right, in this mm -hmm. country. And now I see the climate that immigrants are living in um, under this administration. I see the way that even refugees who had always been uncontroversial immigrants are now suddenly demonized and unwanted. Mm. And it it's deeply grieving. I think I feel a sense of solidarity and connection um, because I'm not able to look away. They're not just people I read about in the news or that I can scroll by on Twitter. Like immigrants come into our office every day mm -hmm. and they come with needs. And some we have to say, you don't have any solution available to you at this time. Mm. If anything changes, come back. You know, if you get married, if you happen to find a relative who was a U.S. citizen. And so I feel, yeah, I feel a deeper sense of connection to the community and also a deep sense of compassion for just the way that things are happening right now and the way that so many immigrants are being dehumanized and and mistreated it's almost as if we've forgotten that we are the immigrant that we are that all of us are you know there's a great passage in scripture where all who was a roman citizen and could have reveled in that privilege reminds people like hey our citizenship isn't here you mm -hmm. know we belong to a nation that doesn't have any borders and and that's my deep conviction the longer I work with immigrants. And I really try to dignify them to not have them accept the messages they hear about us, you know, in the media, in the world at large. So, yeah, it's a really painful, difficult time to be an immigrant in the West. But it's also, I believe, an opportunity, um, an opportunity to just really what's happened, it's what was always underneath has been uncovered. And it's an mm. opportunity for us to actually deal with it. Mm -hmm. to actually, um, you know, root out the evil of xenophobia, the evil of racism that would keep us from recognizing the humanity in the other people around us. Mm -hmm. And so that, if we can do that work, is a really good thing. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. This question may seem quite vague, so take it where you may. Uh, but what is it that we ought to see that God sees? I think what God sees is most evident in the life of Hagar. Hmm. Hagar was young. She was a woman. She was Egyptian. And she was a servant in the household of of Abraham and Sarah, you know, by all accounts, she was when you might see a construction worker on the street, you know, so many um, Latinx immigrants here in Baltimore, they work in construction or they work in custodial work. They wash linens for hospitals. Um, and there's sort of these invisible jobs 
that we don't see, that we don't value. I mean, we're grateful, right? That our offices are clean mm. when we go in on Monday, but they're not jobs that we see. They're not people that are seen. And yet God sees the story of each of these people. I mean, they're not just there to serve us and to serve, you know, make our lives better and make it easier for us to have lucrative work, but they're each a human being made in the image of God. And God sees that and recognizes that just as God appeared to Hagar twice in the desert, even though she was so insignificant in the ancient world, she was less than nothing um, to even the people for whom she was bearing a child. Um, God appeared to her and God saw her, like God endowed her with value and dignity and one of my friends um, at work read my book and she comes from a more sort of conservative background. And she told me, she goes, you know, whenever I walk around Baltimore now and I see people, like I saw the guy washing windows outside a building and I thought, I wonder what his story is. I wonder mm -hmm. who he is and where he comes from. And she said, it just made me see people around me in a different way. And I think that's what God does. God sees all the immigrants that are not valued, that are, you know, sort of unwanted. The way I describe my, my grandmother, undocumented, working as a housekeeper, people didn't see her, but God saw her. I think that's what, that's what I really wanted people to connect to, this reality of that God doesn't differentiate. We're the ones who make those distinctions of which humans are more human so to speak, than others, right? Mm -hmm. But God sees all of us. Mm -hmm. And the question is whether we will listen to God's spirit and, and see each other as well. Mm -hmm. Last mm -hmm. question, Karen. How can listeners get connected with you and your work? Sure. So I have a website that I don't always keep up, but uh, <laughs> karen-gonzalez.com. Probably the best place to find me is on Twitter. I love Twitter. It's my favorite. Or in Instagram. And I have the same handle for both. And it's at underscore Karen J. Gonzalez. Awesome. Thank you so much, Karen. Uh, I, I really enjoyed reading The God Who Sees. Uh, and, and it's just been a delight to be able to talk with you and, and yeah, to be, be able to meet with you in person and just hear the stories, not only in word form, but then to be able to hear those stories and hear those same thoughts in the expressions of your face and your eyes. It's just, I, I love being able to see people through in a, in a meeting uh, and talking about their work uh, because their eyes and their facial features just light up in a different way than you might be able to get uh, by just simply reading a book. Um, but thank you for sharing your story. This has been so wonderful. And I, I think your your story and the work that you do is so poignant and meaningful and, and so critical in our world. And, and so I thank you for all the work that you do and, and for all the words that you have to share. Thank you so much, Mason. Loved being on here. Appreciate the thoughtful questions. Vibe. Hold on. Come get high, off these good vibes, you ain't gotta lie, <laughs> when you this fly, oh you too good, well then goodbye, all I got is good, and these good vibes, just vibe, just vibe, just vibe, just vibe, yeah, just vibe.
If that episode left you hanging and you're wanting more from both Karen and Jelani, you can find links to connect to them and their work in the episode description. Again, you can also connect to me through my website, masonmenega.com. There you can find more of my work, including some articles and papers I write, other religionless church episodes, and ways to connect with me via social media. Also, as I mentioned at the top of the episode, if religionless church matters to you, support by giving a rating and review and by becoming a patron of my Patreon page. Thank you for listening to Religionless Church. I send you out with this. May the divine bless you with doubt and keep you disrupted. May the divine make the divine's face of infinitude shine upon you and show you graciousness to your own finitude. May the divine lift up the divine's countenance of justice upon you and give you whole unsatisfaction now and forever. So be it. That ain't drop shit recently. Good vibes are what the people need. Yo, if this is my moment, then I'm taking my time leisurely. Check it. I look like a buffet on a rough day. You can't never worry what a hater say. Just see through it like an x-ray. This a recipe for a good day. And I hope it don't sound cliche. I just hope and pray that you don't get played like a bad song on a good day. Cause... It's so hard on you. It's just hard on you. Bye.